Would you turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3? That's the second to last book in your Old Testament. And page 1091, if you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, is where Zechariah begins. And we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 3. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless his word this evening. Lord, I'm so grateful, so thankful for this vision that we get to study tonight, this beautiful picture. A vision that meant so much to your people long ago. And a vision that means so much to your people today. And Lord, tonight I also want to thank you for the incredible supernatural nature of your word. In reading these words, we know we're reading your very word to us. So open our hearts wide. And bless this time, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, on February 15th, 519 B.C., the prophet Zechariah, well, he went to bed. He had worked hard. It's tough being a prophet. He had worked hard all day, and he's tired, and he went to bed. But he didn't get much sleep that night. Because on that night, God gave him eight visions, which he recorded right here in these opening chapters of the book of Zechariah. And these visions were meant to motivate and encourage that first group of Jews that came back from captivity in Babylon, returning to the city of Jerusalem while it lays in ruins, and the first group of Jews were required to rebuild that temple that had been broken down, and these visions are meant to encourage them. And tonight we come to the fourth vision recorded here in chapter 3, and it's such a special one. Let's read through it. Verse 1, Zechariah writing says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest... Standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. And he was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I've removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban 
on his head, and they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. So Zechariah here is given a vision of a judiciary scene that's taking place in heaven. In this vision, it's as if Zechariah walks into the heavenly courtroom and he's observing a case that is being decided. It is implied that God the Father is the judge. He's on the throne. He's on the bench. He will make the call. Then there's a man by the name of Joshua who's the accused. Then there is a prosecuting attorney, the accuser, Satan. And then also in that room, as it says in verse 1, there is the angel of the Lord. And you'll notice possibly in your Bible, angel is capitalized. A lot of times in the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord, that's speaking of an Old Testament appearance of the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And I believe that that is the case here. And Jesus is the defense attorney. He's Joshua's advocate. So, who is this man Joshua? Well, Joshua was one of the 50,000 Jews who first returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. And as it turns out, Joshua is one of the main leaders of that group. Another of the main leaders is that guy by the name of Zerubbabel. And he's the governor of the group. He's in charge of the different civil matters and all of those different things. Joshua is the spiritual leader. It says in verse 1 that he's the high priest. He's the chief priest of the nation. And he has a big job. His job is to represent God to the people and also to represent the people before God. And God is calling upon Joshua to complete a huge task. The temple lies in ruins. Rebuild that temple, and once that temple is rebuilt, reinitiate the Levitical priesthood. Get all the furniture up and running again inside the temple. Get the altar of burnt offerings in the court of the temple going. Continue to do all those sacrifices. Keep the feasts. So this is a humongous, big task for Joshua. And very, very important. But... Joshua has a problem. Being human, and as all humans are, he was a sinner. And as high priest, he was representing a sinful nation. 
verse 3 says Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. Now that word for filthy in the Hebrew language, it is filth of the most vile and loathsome character. Now I don't really want to offend you here tonight, but you need to understand what this word means. Dung splattered garments. Excrement covered garments. He's wearing garments that stunk. The high priest is covered in sin and he smells like it. And he represents a nation that's covered in sin and smells like it. For you see, they had been rebelling against the Lord. If you remember what we talked about a couple weeks, when they first got to Jerusalem, they started working on the temple. And they made good progress. They got the foundation all done. And then they began to meet a little bit of opposition, and they began to go their own way, and they began to build their own houses, their own places of business, and the work of the temple lay dormant for the next 15, 16 years. So they're guilty. They're sinful. They're dirty. And as you know, God is without sin. And then to walk in the courtroom of God in filthy garments. It says right there at the end of verse 2 that Joshua was a brand in the fire. Now I want you to think of a campfire tonight with a blackened, charred chunk of wood smoldering in the ashes just about to be burned up. That is the position of Joshua. That is the position of the nation of Israel. Okay. The prosecuting attorney, Satan, has brought Joshua in. And it says in verse 1 that Satan is standing at the right hand of Joshua to oppose him. The very Hebrew word for Satan means adversary, to oppose. And understand that this is what Satan does. He opposes every true work of God. And he opposes the people of God. And remember, God wants to do an amazing thing through Joshua. Rebuild a temple. Get the priesthood going. Get all of Jerusalem eventually rebuilt. This is a huge task. A big deal. And Satan is there to oppose. And how does he oppose Joshua? Well, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the devil is called the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night. So, he brought Joshua in. Look at this sinner. Can you see Satan hissing? Look what he's wearing. Smell what he's wearing. Look at the nation that he represents. Smell the nation that 
he represents. This man is unfit. This man is unworthy. This man doesn't belong. And you know what? Satan was telling the truth. Satan was right. And he had all the evidence. Joshua wasn't worthy. There he is standing in those filthy garments. You know, it's been said that Satan will always tell lies about God to you. But he will always tell the truth about you to God. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And please notice what he's saying. He's trying to take Joshua out. Look at this sinner. He doesn't deserve it. Get rid of him. Trying to squash everything about what God is doing in that man's life. Now I'll tell you, Satan is a monster. Satan is not the little cartoon figure. You know, the little red guy with the horns and the pitchfork. In fact, Satan is a murderer. Satan hates the people of God. And he hates the people of God getting involved in the work of God. And if he had his way, he'd kill us. Jesus called Satan the thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, says this of Satan. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I'm reminded of that time that that Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Boy, how would you like Jesus to tell you that? Satan was asking for Peter. Give him to me. Let, him, let me sift him like wheat. This scene with Joshua in the courtroom reminds me of another scene in heaven in the book of Job. Do you remember that scene? You have God there and Satan makes his way. And God says, if you considered my servant Job, there's none righteous like him. And remember Satan says to God, Yeah, he's that way because he's rich. Look, you've blessed him. He's got the big house. He's got, you know, the nice big family. He's got everything. And Satan says to God, if you took all that away from Job, he'd curse you to his face, to your face. And so Job allowed Satan to go forth. And Satan, that monster, burned down his business, burned down his house, His children were killed all in one day. Job did not blaspheme God. Satan goes back into the courtroom. The Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? And and Satan says, yeah, but he's healthy. He's got his health. Let me attack his health and then I'll curse you. God says, I give you permission, 
Just don't take his life. And Satan inflicted the worst type of pain and suffering upon Job. When, when Satan's done with Job, we find Job on a pile of rubbish, scratching his boils with broken pottery. After losing everything. And I want you to know, that is a picture of what the devil would want to do with each and every one of us. Just absolutely destroy our lives. At the very least, he wants to absolutely neutralize you. Absolutely take you off the racetrack. Accusing you. Calling you a sinner and then rubbing your nose in it. Well, thank the Lord. The angel of the Lord is there. Joshua has a defense attorney. Joshua has an advocate. And I love what it says. Verse 4, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So Satan brings him in, accuses him, and the Lord, the Lord, Jesus Christ, shut up, Satan, rebukes him, be quiet. I've saved this man. He may be a little twig in the fire, but I've plucked him out. And I'm going to cleanse him. I'm going to forgive him. Verse 4. It says, he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments. And so you can see these people come and they take off his filthy garments. Then he says to Joshua, I've removed your iniquity from you. And now I will clothe you with rich robes. So a two-phase salvation here. First, get rid of all the sin. Take away all the filthy garments. And then put on those clean garments. And by the way, he's the high priest. So he's getting the real pretty ones. Perfect, white, high priestly robes. The breastplate put on. It's interesting, Zechariah, who's seen this vision, suggests put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head. Now, this isn't any turban. This is the turban for the high priest of Israel. And that is a clean white turban. And according to the book of Exodus, there was a gold plate right on the front. And you know what it said on the gold plate? Holiness to the Lord. I've declared him clean. I've made him clean. And no doubt God the Father, the judging, clean, acquitted, innocent. So I want you to see this picture. Joshua walks in, a brand in the fire, clothed in filthy garments. Rightly accused by Satan. The Lord steps in. Plucks him out of the fire. 
and calls him holy to the Lord, clothes him in righteousness and holiness. What a beautiful picture. Okay, notice right after that miracle, after that cleansing, verse 6. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts, and I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. Now, please track this with me. He's just saved him. He's just cleansed him. I've cleaned you up. I've saved you. I've plucked you out of the fire. Now walk in my ways. Keep my commands. Follow me. Serve me. And you'll be the high priest. You'll govern my house. You'll have access to my courts. Please don't miss this. The miracle of cleansing happens first. God cleanses. God makes holy. God changes a life. And in turn, we rejoice. We're grateful. Like prophet Isaiah said in 61 verse 10 of his book, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Thank you. I was toast. I was dirty. You cleanse me. Now, I'll serve you. And I'll serve you the rest of my days. And you know what happened? This vision right here was so encouraging to Joshua and to the rest of the nation. This vision, along with the other visions that we've talked about, motivated them. And you know what they did? They rebuilt the temple. And Joshua reinstated the priesthood and began all of that again. Thankful for that opportunity, thankful for their cleansing. Okay, 2,500 years later, this vision is also very important for us. I mean, this is a vision that perfectly parallels Christian salvation and living the Christian life. The Bible teaches that we are sinners, that all have sinned and fallen short from the glory of God. We are not even close. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, even our acts of righteousness that we attempt in our own strength Filthy rags, same kind of filthiness mentioned here in in this Zechariah chapter 3. We're filthy, we're sinful, 
We're dirty. And of course, Satan accuses us, makes us known of our sin, rubs our nose in it. But God in his grace and in his love and mercy made it possible for us to be cleansed. He sent the advocate. He sent the savior. He sent our defense attorney. And of course, you know what I'm talking about, the gospel. Jesus left heaven, became man, lived an absolutely perfect life. The Bible says that he came into this world to save sinners, to wash away our sins. Jesus went to the cross and he took my sins upon him. He took all of our sins. He died for our sins. He took the punishment for our sins. And on the third day, he rose again. And he's alive. And he's the Savior. And he's made the way open for salvation. And the scripture teaches that when you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, when you ask him to be your Savior, when you just simply bow the knee and admit, Lord, I'm dirty. I'm not worthy. And I trust in you because you paid the price. The Bible says, and I don't think we even fully understand it. The Bible says when you do that, a spectacular miracle takes place in your life. You become a brand new creation. You become born again. And there's a really beautiful aspect of salvation being illustrated in this vision. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, two things happen. First of all, all of your sin is taken away. Your filthy garments are taken away. But you're not left there in your self-righteousness even with all your sin taken away. The scripture says when you give your life to the Lord Jesus, he clothes you in his righteousness. Not only are all your sins forgiven, but the very holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ is placed upon you. And it is a spectacular miracle. I think, and I know I say this a lot, I love every verse in the Bible. I've told you that, right? But look at this verse. For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. For us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now think about that transaction on the cross. The perfect righteous one became sin. And died in our place. So that the sinners could not only be forgiven but become the righteousness of Christ in him. And my brother and sister in Christ, that's who you are. And don't you ever forget it. 
what God has done in your life through salvation, through faith in Jesus Christ. You're a miracle. And you know what needs to happen? You need to be thankful. When you really understand what Christ has done for you, filled with joy. And then the Lord says to you, okay, now walk in my ways. Serve me. Keep my commands. This famous verse in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that, do we get saved by good works? Absolutely not. We get saved by grace. Through what? Through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how you get saved. He does the miracle of salvation. You place your faith in him and you get saved. But look what happens after. We're his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you get saved, you get transformed, you get changed, you're thankful, and so now you want to serve God. And this verse says that there are ways, there are good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now with Joshua, it was building the temple in his day. And you know what? He did it. It's different in every Christian's life. For me, it was planting a church in El Paso, Texas. And you know what? I was grateful to do it because of what Jesus has done in my life. For others, it might be, hey, you're going to go work with the homeless. You're going to be a part of this ministry or that ministry. And as Christians, wherever the Lord leads, we are absolutely open and willing and wanting to do it. Never forget that campfire. Never forget that brand. A little chunk of wood smoldering in the ashes of the campfire. And God plucks it out. Me, that brand. You, that brand. Never forget it. What Christ has done for you. And let that motivate you every day. To live for him. That's why we come to church. That's why we serve him. That's why we love one another. That's why we seek to be witnesses. That's why we seek to please God with our lives. The motivation for living the Christian life is the salvation that we've been freely given. And being thankful for it. Okay, now, you do need to know that as a born-again Christian, Satan is still active. He's still the accuser. And as a born-again Christian, you're not going to live a perfect life. Anybody here yet as a Christian living a perfect life? If you raise your hand, you're a liar and you just blew it. We don't live perfect lives, even as Christians. I get so frustrated when people go, I'm not going to go to church. There's a bunch of hypocrites at church. 
everyone's a hypocrite. The first thing you have to do to become a member of the church is to admit that you're an utter wretch. And then even as Christians, we blow it. We make mistakes. And I will tell you this. Satan will be right there to rub your nose in it. He'll be right there. He'll be there to say, and you call yourself a Christian. And you're going to do ministry. And you're going to serve God. Look at you. You stink. He'll do it. And Satan will seek to absolutely neutralize Christians. To get Christians to believe, I'm not good enough. I can't live like a Christian. I can't be in ministry. I can't be a part of church. And absolutely take people out. Christian, never forget this. It says in 1 John, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an what? An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That's who you are. When you sin as a Christian, you come to the Lord and you admit it. You confess, you repent, but you don't let the devil keep you down. You get back up and you serve him. You know, Martin Luther was a great man of God and he was very sensitive and he struggled with sin in his life, even as a Christian, and he struggled with sin in his past. And there's a story that one day he was in his study and he had a vision of Satan. And Satan came before him and gave him all this list. Here's all the sins you've committed, Martin Luther, bringing up all of his past sins and whatnot. And Martin got mad and he was sort of an angry guy to begin with, right? According to the story, he shouted at Satan. It's all true, Satan, and many more sins I have committed in my life which are known to God only. You're right. But right at the bottom of your list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us all from sin. And then as the story goes, he took an inkwell and he threw it. And Satan ducked. No, I'm I'm kidding. He didn't duck. He wasn't really there. It was a vision. But his inkwell hit the wall, exploded, and stained that whole side of his wall. Now, this all took place at the castle called Wartburg in Germany. And it's really interesting. You can actually go there. That's his room. And you can still see the ink. You see where people chip... They, they try to peel it off. But understand that that was a huge moment in Martin Luther's life. It's where he finally said, enough, Satan. You're not going to hold me back. I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I have been set free. And I would love for you to have that moment. 
I would love for you to have that moment because I know there are a lot of Christians that they hold back and they think I can't be a part of it because I'm not as good as pastor or that other Christian over there or this and that. Now you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The garments have been removed. And you go all out. Amen? You follow him. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Never forget your advocate in heaven. Okay, now quickly, look how this vision takes a turn. Look what it says in verse 8. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. Literally, this vision, these people are symbolic of something. That's literally what that verse is saying. So I'm going to put up, again, my favorite picture of Old Testament prophecy. You remember the old bifocals, right? There's this part where you can see far in the distance, and there's the part where you can see up close. So everything that we've just read has a short-term, near-term fulfillment But it also points to something far. And it says right there, this is a wondrous sign. So let's try to figure it out. Verse 8. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. Now watch this. For behold, I'm bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in how many days? In one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig Tree. Now, I want you to see the end of verse 9. That's the key phrase. It says, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Speaking of the future. Okay, the short-term fulfillment of that is what he did with Joshua and the people. He cleansed them. And they rebuilt the temple. And they started the priesthood. But that vision is also symbolic of another cleansing that's coming in the future of much greater magnitude. In that day, God says, I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Now, that's going to take place through the servant. Or the branch. Now this is clearly a messianic prophecy. This is speaking some 500 years before Jesus shows up. Of Jesus when he shows up. And notice how Jesus is referred to. Verse 9. Or the end of verse 8. My servant. When the Messiah comes. He'll be my servant. 
And certainly when Jesus came, he was a servant. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John chapter 4, Jesus said, My food, my sustenance, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus came to be a servant of God. And incredibly, what truly blows my mind is he came to be a servant to us. For Jesus said in Mark 10, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And who could ever forget in the upper room? They're all sitting around the table with dirty feet. Remember that? And the basin's right there. Any one of those guys could have done it. Did Peter do it? No. He's looking for the best seat at the table, right? The scripture even says that they would argue about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And there they sit with their dirty feet. Who got up? Jesus got up. Poured water in a basin and went around the table and washed each one of those guys' dirty feet. I... Jesus should have been served, right? When Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes on the scene, he's the servant. He's humble. And then look at this very important title. Jesus is called my servant, the branch. Now in my Bible, all letters are capitalized. Do you see that in your Bible too? Big B, big R, big A, big branch. Okay, what does this mean when it says Jesus is the branch? And I want you to stay with me because I actually believe that this is one of the most specific and amazing prophecies in the whole Old Testament concerning who the Messiah would be. So let me, branch. Don't think of a branch on a tree. Think of a branch on a family tree. That's how it's used when it's applied to Jesus. It speaks of lineage. It speaks of his family, where he's coming from. So, we need to go to other scriptures to try to determine the family tree of Jesus. And in Jeremiah chapter 23, speaking of the coming Messiah, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a what? A branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. So the Old Testament says that the coming Messiah will be a branch Of whom? David. The springing forth from posterity. Now this is speaking of the humanity of the Messiah. He'll be human. He'll be a son of David. Notice also he'll be a king. So the Messiah will be from the family of David 
and will follow along the royal bloodline of David. Got it? Predicted hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene. And then, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, speaking of the coming Messiah, says, In that day, the branch of the what? The Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing. So, the branch of the Lord. And here in Joshua chapter 3, God calls him my servant, my branch. Origins with me. I think that is speaking about the deity of Jesus Christ. So I think if you dig into this term, the branch, you find that the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be fully God and fully man. And of course, that was absolutely true in the life of Jesus. His lineage is traced all the way back along the royal line to David. So he comes legally from the line of David. But of course, he was born of the virgin Mary, conceived miraculously in the womb by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, deity. I think that is just, to me, one of the most amazing doctrines of the Christian faith. God became man. Predicted in the Old Testament, recorded in the Gospels. And by the way, the thought of the incarnation even shows up in the very last chapter of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22, Jesus signing off says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Now, what's he saying there? I'm the root of David. I'm the originator of David. I created David. And I'm the what of David? The offspring of David. You see, both the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ all over the Bible, and that was absolutely necessary for our salvation. So, the branch is coming. My servant is coming. Verse 9, for behold the stone that I've laid before Joshua. Upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. This coming Messiah will be like a stone. And of course, we know in the New Testament, Jesus is called our cornerstone, our foundational stone on which the church would be built. The living stone. Remember we saw a couple of weeks that he's the stone that strikes the statue representing all the kingdoms of man. Here he's likened to a stone, kind of a silly stone or a strange stone. I shouldn't say silly. Seven eyes. And there's inscriptions in it. 
And the seven eyes represent, I believe, perfect wisdom and knowledge. And the inscription, the markings. So this Messiah is going to come. He's going to be the servant, the branch, and the stone. And through him, at the end of verse 9, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So what's that speaking of? What's Jesus going to do when he comes? I want to put this very important chart up again. Looking at the prophecy. Here's an Old Testament prophecy. An Old Testament prophet. Remember what he saw. He saw the mountain peaks. As Christians, we stand from this side because we've got more of history to look back at, and we see all the peaks and the valleys. So we see the church age. These Old Testament prophets never saw the church age. So the prophets saw the first coming of Christ, and they saw the second coming of Christ. And I believe that both of those comings are in view in this prophecy. When the branch comes, when the Messiah comes, in one day he will remove the iniquity of the land. And what did he do at the cross? In one day. And some even believe that those marks on the stone represent the wounds of Jesus Christ at the cross. And by the way, did you know that he will carry those wounds into heaven? He has. And when we see Jesus, we'll see the wounds. Forever. We'll see Christ as the sacrifice lamb who made it possible for us to be saved. Now, verse 10, it says, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, Everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. So this is also speaking, I believe, of the second coming of Christ. And we're going to see more about this in the book of Zechariah. But I believe the Bible teaches that when Jesus comes the second time, he is going to save the entire nation of Israel in one day. He'll come and deliver them from the Antichrist. And he will usher in the millennial reign, which is marked by prosperity and safety, which is what verse 10 is approaching, speaking of. So there is a lot going on in this. And I just want to just remember this picture. Remember what Christ has done for you, my brother and sister in Christ. Remember that he's clothed you in righteousness, and that's the center of his will. Don't lose sight of it. And then if you're here tonight and you haven't yet received Christ, do so. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Lord promised 
that he would remove the iniquity of the land in one day. And Christ did that. And if you gave your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you asked him to be your Lord and Savior, the sacrifice of Jesus applied to your life removed all the sin from your life in that one moment. So that you are clothed in righteousness, saved by him forever. If you're here tonight and you haven't had that transaction, I want you to know tonight the Bible is crystal clear. The sacrifice of Jesus applied to your life will remove all the sin from your life in one moment. One moment. And you say, Well, I was dirty. I'm dirty. You don't know how bad I've been. The shed blood of Jesus Christ washes away all sin. The only sin that will not be forgiven is the sin of unbelief in Christ. Because you have to put your faith in him to get all the sin removed. Don't reject him. Invite him right now to be your Lord and Savior if that's you. You say, Lord Jesus, remove all my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. And clothe me forever in your rich robes of righteousness. Make me yours. And change my life and show me how you want to live, how you want me to live for you. And help me to live my life joyfully, serving you. And then, Father, I pray for all of us that we'd be greatly encouraged. God, I pray that no one would be stuck in the mud. No one who belongs to you. Thank you for your great power and love and mercy and grace. This continues now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen.